Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 17. In this episode, I talk with Lisa Archibald about her advocacy around developmental language disorder, her research on working memory, and her collaboration with clinicians and educators. This conversation is one in a five-part series on developmental language disorder, known as DLD, released this week in honor of DLD Awareness Day, which this year is on Friday, October 18th. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new content and episodes, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Well, welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. Lisa, I'll have you start by introducing yourself. Okay, my name is Lisa Archibald, and I'm an associate professor in the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Western Ontario. And I have a background as a speech and language pathologist, and that's where I teach now. Fantastic. So these podcasts are, I have a series of five that are being released uh, and you're part of it for DLD Awareness Day. And I know you've been very active in the Rattle uh, International efforts. And I wanted you to tell me a bit about what led you to, to advocate for DLD. Yeah, so I think um, I've been aware of the lack of consistency around identifying kids with a language disorder and what we call them. So it's a lot, takes up a lot of the work that we do, and yet we still don't really have a suitable name for these kids or something that we agree on. So that was really motivating for me. Um, and the opportunity to work internationally seemed, uh, and not only with researchers, but outside of the research community as well, that all seemed like a pretty great opportunity. And then it sort of has snowballed from there. <laughs> so, yes. so I got more, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then, wow, here I am doing a lot. But uh, anyways, it, it began there. Wow. And so this new, uh, you know, I, I guess I was a little surprised when I talked to Carla and Sean. I guess surprised, more just reflecting on the fact that we haven't really been act, you know, active in DLD awareness that long. I mean, this is really only the second DLD Awareness Day, even though there was the rally in 2017, and it really shocked me because I, like you, think, wow, we're doing a lot right now, and it's really snowballing. There's, it's a great feeling, and I was wondering, how did you get involved in Rattle? Yeah, so um, I was part of the Catalyse uh, Consortium group, and so um, when that was coming out, we were uh, beginning to think about how to unroll that. And so I was watching the rally group um, and I was moving into um, um, the We Speeches, you know, Twitter space and that was connecting me sort of more personally with all of those folks. Um, and as the, the original founding rally group moved to the international committee, that's um, when I became involved more heavily. That's great. What are you excited about with DLD Awareness Day coming up October 18th? Yeah, um, 
so I think my, I mean, just, you know, if I can take a little side answer yes. to that, I think what excites me about all of this is the conversations that I'm having with clinicians, which, you know, uh, is a big part of what I'm doing in Canada in ways that I've never talked to clinicians before. So, the, you know, uh, uh, and I think that's, that's super exciting. Um, October 18th uh, is uh, going to be a great day. We're already seeing um, our, sub our you know, story submissions coming in uh, with our new theme of DLD, You and Me. And I think that's hugely powerful um, about uh, bringing uh, DLD awareness to, to all kinds of sectors. And I think that's the most exciting piece. What have you heard from clinicians as you're providing professional development, interacting with them in clinical partnerships across Canada? What are you finding? Yeah, so there's, yeah, I think I'm because I'm involved in the international committee, I get um, more aware of what are the issues in the different countries that uh, I'm connected through. Uh, and I think it's interesting to reflect on that. I think um, folks are uh, in different places professionally about their practice around labeling, and they have different needs in terms of labeling. So in Canada, um, our educational system service, our SLP service in educational SLP is not uh, really tied to the label, a label like developmental language disorder. There's a, a few um, labels that matter for funding for for a service, but a whole lot of them wouldn't have a direct uh, connection to funding. And as a result, the practice of labeling hasn't been a big part of what um, educational speech language pathologists feels uh, is a, a part of their service. And so now it's a whole lot of conversations about um why it's important so um you know there there there's nobody creating service for kids who don't exist right so maybe we don't have services for kids with dld but if we don't have kids with dld <laughs> then nobody's saying hey here's a great service could you find some kids for it right so right. we have to start identifying those kids so that they can have their outcry about uh, you know the fact that they need services um and so that really has to come to a, begin with us um, and and parents you know, need some understanding of the child's disorder and they need you know sound bites essentially right they need to know you know not in in six page reports necessarily although that can certainly give them lots of detail but they also need the sound bite of you know this is what my kid you know has and this is how I'm going to understand it and so for those I think we need to move practice towards the use of a, a good label more consistently, um, even if it's not directly tied to you must label in order to get service. So um, that's the, the conversations that I'm having with clinicians um, in Canada is, is why and how we go about implementing this in practice. Right, and thinking about the importance of a label and why it might be beneficial to parents and children to have a label so they can get information to share with others and their family and their community. And also so children can become empowered by uh, their individual differences and they can advocate for themselves. And it seems to me that you know, as someone who practiced too and was really kind of uncertain as a practicing clinician about labeling and I felt very nervous about it, I could really empathize with the idea of like, do I really want to give this label? It's very weighty. You think, oh, there's label stigma. But I have to say that my experience working in the community of children with dyslexia has changed my mind 
And I've seen such a benefit in that community talking to parents and saying to them, you know, your child looks to have dyslexia. This is the profile. And then they say, oh, I've heard of that. Or, and then I can send them to all these resources, International Dyslexia Association. There's a community for them. And I've seen that uh, become very powerful. And so it's made me change my view about labeling uh, through dyslexia to think about the benefits of DLD as well for the, the people who have DLD and their families. I think it's just so critical. I also see, I don't know if you see this too, but I just see when I work with these families, mainly through my research practice now, I, I see that um, th there's just a lot of shame associated with having problems in language. It's so, um, it permeates all aspects of our life. And so having this uh, deep shame about what did I do to make, you know, my some kind of, you know, feeling of blame, like, did I do something wrong with my child? Did I not talk to him enough? Did I not read to him enough? Or even just thinking about long-term uh, fear of what's going to happen long-term and just... I personally see that label as being so critical, and I'm I'm so glad you're having those conversations, Lisa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think that's you know really a, an important piece is I think the and and you know the, I, what I think is exciting is um, like I tell people this all the time like for the first time in my career. Um, Parents can go and Google developmental languages and find good information, right? So now is the time to be telling them, right? And and now is a new time to be telling them. And that's very exciting. And they have then the right to know, right? They have the right to know that this would be the thing that they could go and learn about and advocate for. And and so I think that's important to, to provide them with that information. You know, if we have a medical problem. Yeah. You know, first thing we do is go and yes. search online on it. And we they need something to put in the Google search engine, yeah. right? Uh, and and they should have that. And they it, it should be clear. When they come home from a long meeting with us about assessment results, they should be able to tell their relatives in one sentence. Yes. This is what the person said. Um, because they won't be able to remember, you know, all the rest um, that you've told them. So I think sharing that label is really important for, for their sakes. I get that um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, especially when it's a professional change, then it's challenging for the professional to know exactly. And I get a lot of questions. You know, people want the equation that they will do this, this, and this, and it will equal giving the DLD label. Um, and it's important conversations and I think we should have them. Unfortunately, this, you know, I don't think the answer is going to be quite as simple as that. But um, I think the more that we have those kinds of conversations, the more our practice will begin to align. Um, and that's a really great thing. Yeah, I agree. It is not really an equation. It's so heterogeneous, this population. But I always think it's that old saying of like, if it walks like a duck, duck, talks like a duck, you know, you know it is because you see a constellation of features that say, yeah, it looks like this child has language disorder. Um, and I mean, I know one of the biggest criteria is having language skills below what would be expected for their age. But, you know, as we know, based on uh, psychometrics of different assessments, that cut point can differ across assessments and across ages, and that's tricky. But it does seem like when I talk to clinicians, they do have a really strong understanding of this child seems to be presenting with, 
developmental language disorder, not just from the standardized test scores, but with how they are producing and understanding language and the amount of repetitions that it takes for them to learn, uh, you know, language structures, vocabulary, and those kinds of things. It does seem like there's a fairly clear profile that comes forward and, you know, the functional outcomes associated with DLD, uh, even though there's more work to be done in that area. Yeah, I agree. And I think in clinicians, um, you know, there'll be ones that seem, I think, uh, you know, clear cut, right? You know, that, you know, I, you know, this is a, you know, this is a profile, this kid is DLD. And there might be others that it takes time for speech, uh, for the clinician to uh, do assessment over some time or uh, yes. you know, consider what else is going on. And I think clinicians should feel comfortable with, yes. you know, that that's all a part of practice. And they, they you know, they shouldn't feel under the gun to provide, uh, you know, make a diagnostic decision that they're not comfortable making. They need to collect more information. That's all fine. Um, but I think the mindset of moving towards, you know, providing a label as being an important part of assessment will help them to begin practice in some area, you know, in this area. So I think that's really important. I wanted to go back to your comments about the parents. You know, I think um, the challenge of sharing um, this um, information is important to consider. I, you have a podcast on crucial conversations, which yes. um, I thought was really relevant to this idea. Um, but I do think that as challenging as that first kind of conversation, it's the kind of information that can move parents towards focusing on help and advocacy, right? It's almost like they need an answer to their question first, right? What is it about my kid? Um, and until they get that answer, they'll, they'll, it's harder for them to move towards things that can really help. And so if we can get them that answer, then we can begin that shift towards help and advocacy and support and that sort of thing. So I think it's another important thing that uh, an answer to the question, uh, we need to satisfy that yes. so we can enable parents to move past that question. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then I love how this year the campaign uh, rattle campaign is really about bringing forward the stories of the individuals because to me that's also uh, so critical when you have a parent and you say your child has DLD you send them for information but they're also looking for that personal connection is there another parent that has a child with DLD what's it look like over time like you know finding a parent who has a child with DLD who's in college or who you know is in high school what does it look like across time all these stories I think are so so critical or meeting an adult who has DLD and having them share their experience uh, that's really powerful oh I think it's it's hugely valuable um, seeing you know all those services connecting with someone who you know has something that's kind of like what you have, um, you know, is going to be really important, and it's going to inform all of us, right? Because you know, I, you know, we have fewer um, services and research into these older kids and adults too, and so you know, we, you know, we all we all need to see what this looks like in all sorts of different presentations. So, um, yeah, so it's it's a very exciting time. I, I, a while ago, I was at a meeting where we spent you know the first half of it talking about we need parents to be advocating for services. And then the second part saying, well, we're not sure about using this label, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But how can parents be advocates if they don't have anything to advocate for, right? right? So if we want them to be better advocates, then we need to be saying, well, you, your kid has DLD, you have DLD, you people, you know, do you know anyone? Can you, and then 
then we can have more synergy happening, right? Can, those groups will come together and support each other and begin to be active. But uh, that can't begin until people know, you know, what, what they have. And so that's an important part of our practice is uh, answering those questions. I was thinking too about uh, the debate between, you know, what to call DLD. It's been called so many different things. Um, and Dorothy discussed, you know, her paper that she wrote where she uncovered all of the different terms that have been used and how tricky that is, right, you, for you know, advocating. But I also think it's important for everyone to keep in mind, I remind myself of this, that it's pretty normal within lots of different um, disorders that are out there that there's this debate. I mean, there's, again, I'll use dyslexia as an example because I'm most familiar with it. But there's a book called The Dyslexia Debate within the International Dyslexia Association, uh, you know, a journal called Perspectives. There was a whole issue on should we call this dyslexia still? What should it be called? Or should it be called reading disorder? So I do think that labels and picking the most descriptive and accurate label is something that is a struggle across many, many, many um, uh, differences that we see in people. And so that's, I think it is a natural evolution. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I absolutely agree with that. What I, my observation is that the folks who um, are discussing the label, you know, which label should we have, uh, you know, they tend to be the sort of in group, right? The, you know, the, 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 the crowd that are providing research or maybe yes. service in this area. Um, but when we say, okay, we're going to go ahead with this label, then now we focus on engaging people beyond, you know, pe you know, the people who need to hear about it. And that's something I can really put my energy into because I'm not sure we'll ever come to, you know, we could keep arguing which label, yeah, as you've described, for forever. Um, and we often say, okay, well, you know, doesn't we? Let's call it, you know, some arbitrary, you know, and and I'd be fine with that, right? But then it doesn't seem like people are really fine with any label we pick, right? But um, I think that's what's impressive about the Rattled campaign is that you know we we built enough of a consensus. And we have enough resources to now being able to to focus outwards, and and I think that's that's energy I'm really happy to spend, um, and I think that's you know we can really have an impact there. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think that's really important. Is that the it's it might not be the perfect label. Uh, it might not take away the need to to attach any other labels as uh, 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 as you've described in some of your DLD and me um, articles about the other labels that these kids might have. But it can be a powerful label for us to talk about the picture of the language disorder. And it does create these uh, awareness type of days, right? So that you have the label, everyone's rallying around it. Um, and what I want to, before I forget, because I'm afraid I will, I want to talk about something quite exciting happening October 18th in your neck of the woods to bring attention to uh, DLD on that day. So what is that? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so uh, we are ha having a number of light up uh, events, and I should say that uh, this wasn't my brainchild. Uh, I only am sharing in the, the glory because of uh, the success we've had uh, in Canada. So the idea that Sean uh, had with, uh, he, and he's on the International 
DLD committee uh, with with me uh, was that we could have these monuments light up and that could sort of raise awareness, which is pretty cool, right? And so um, I said, well, you know, maybe in Canada we could try these couple. And I, he, uh, it was much earlier on in the process. He was had a little bit of time and and he really um, was instrumental in completing those applications. And uh, we got word that we'll have Niagara Falls lit up for 15 minutes on October 18th. Uh, at 10 p.m. So that's uh, very exciting. My uh, hotel room is already booked to, in wow. the falls, which is about um, a couple of hours away from where I live. Um, and so uh, that's that's a very exciting one because it, it, and I, when I posted that out on Twitter and the Facebook group, it just went you know crazy because you know everywhere in the world yes. people know about Niagara Falls. So that's uh, that's really really exciting uh, for us in Canada. And we've had you know the CN Tower, which is another huge structure here um, will be lit up on the 19th uh, and uh, we've also had success in Edmonton there'll be a bridge and in, and in Montreal um, a tower as well so uh, so that's that's all very exciting and uh, and I think um, you know when until Sean got it going I wasn't don't think I would have really seen you know this is what we should do but there is a real gathering around that and I'm glad that we did it you know we had to do it well in advance uh, all those applications um, and we were saying at that time well you know we don't want the focus to be on the light up events but we now have a lot of those in place I know some are, are, are still have their fingers crossed for others but now uh, we can really bring our focus onto the you and me stories um, which will really be a lovely addition I think um, you know really um, uh, help those the, the folks who are submitting the stories to see you know the world around them uh, also being aware so, so it's very exciting it really is exciting I think that I you know I was um, thrilled when I got an email on Monday from Carla that listed uh, just some of the um, uh, monuments that are being or places being lit up. So I'm going to just quickly read some of those for the listeners. So uh, Victoria Bridge in Brisbane, Australia will be lit up. Purple and yellow are the colors of DLD awareness. Some are being lit up purple and yellow, some purple. Uh, the Sir Leo Helschler Bridge in Brisbane, Australia is lit up purple. The Bolt Bridge in Melbourne, Australia, purple and yellow. Uh, the Rochdale Town Hall in uh, the UK, purple. The Woodman Life Tower in Omaha, Nebraska in the US, purple and yellow. Niagara Falls, as you just mentioned, um, in the US and Canada, you know, their shared monument, uh, purple and yellow. The Zakem Bridge here in Boston, very excited, that's going to also be lit up, purple and yellow. The Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge in Omaha, Nebraska, purple and yellow. The CN Tower, as you mentioned. The Optus Stadium in Perth, Australia, and Matagarup Bridge in Perth, Australia, as well. So it's I think it's really exciting to have this monuments lit up, and and I assume there'll be you know so many pictures online showing these these um, places and possibly people gathering around uh, them. We have a gathering of the lab and some uh, visitors that are in town. Um, uh, the, you know, for our Zakem Bridge, and we're very excited uh, to get that out, and have been thinking a lot of, about the different activities we're going to do. So that's that's really cool, Lisa. That's very, very exciting. Cool. And if there are any others, then people should just uh, email the rattled email, and uh, we'll add those to our list. So yep. yes. And then where, remind me too.
too, we've talked about, and I'll link it to the, the podcast website. Where are the videos that are occurring? Uh, people are submitting videos uh, from themselves having DLD or parents, their personal experiences. Where are those videos located? Yeah, they're going to be on the, linked onto the Rattled uh, website. There's written stories and uh, videos. So they'll mostly, uh, yeah, so they'll, they'll be linked there. That's great. So I'll make sure I have that, uh, you know, in the um, uh, See Her Speak podcast website. So it'll be quick to get there. I was I telling that. Carla and Sean when I spoke to them, you know, we had uh, a discussion like this about advocacy. And I said to them, and I'll say the same to you, boy, it seems like you're doing so much. This must be your full time job, right? Uh, no, <laughs> just a little sliver of what you do and what you do full time, as you mentioned, is, uh, uh, you know, study uh, DLD and work with clinicians and teach courses. But I was wondering if you could tell us about, you know, in your day job, what are some of those findings that you've been particularly struck by or have, uh, you know, thought have were particularly relevant to clinical practice? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah. So this what drove me to to become a researcher was uh, my own clinical practice where I was trying, uh, where I was working with kids, um, maybe with DLD at the time, um, and uh, I was looking at their response to intervention. And, you know, I was bringing my linguistic approach, which was you know, really where my training was grounded. You know, these kids need past tenses, they need this grammatical structure sort of thing. And for some kids, they really got it. You know, they, you know, they'd give me the thumbs up, they'd follow the pattern, you know, they, they'd kind of, and other kids felt to me like they sort of parachuted in every day. And there wasn't really a connection between what I did one day and what I did the next day. And, you know, that sort of thing. And I felt that we really need to, it wasn't so much with linguistic structures with them, it was more their ability to learn and remember what was going on. And that got me interested in whether or not there was more of a working memory problem for those kids versus a more core linguistic uh, problem. And so that's what took me um, to do my PhD and find that answer. It turns out that's more of a career uh, <laughs> question than a PhD uh, question. Um, uh, but uh, that's uh, been a focus of my research is, um, can we look at cognitive and linguistic measures of these kids who are struggle, struggling with learning language and that could could that help us understand individual kids profiles and maybe perhaps uh, the, the interventions that we would do with those kids. What are you finding? What did you find about working memory in children with DLD? Yeah and uh, so we have found uh, you know, we've demonstrated some groups where there's some separation of kids who look like they're more have more working memory issues and kids who look like they have more linguistic issues and I think there's been um, a couple of other related um, research initiatives that have sort of gone along with this um, this separation idea so we've, we've seen a couple of follow-up papers that are at least consistent with that, maybe not using the same kinds of labels that I was using, but um, are consistent with that idea. So I think um, it's a help, at least, uh, in understanding the profiles that, that these kids have. Um, you know, I say to uh, people all the time, there are lots of reasons that there are kids, that there are language differences with kids in schools, and they might all come to you. And so we need to you know, have a, a a holistic perspective of what might be going with that on with that kid and what might be limiting their language abilities and their language performance perhaps um, and so we could we can consider 
a, a wider perspective of factors that might be influencing that. I've been on a team uh, called Profiles of Working Memory and Word Learning for Educational Research Power, and it was and our work was really inspired by the uh, work you have you've done over the years. And one thing that struck us in that team, uh, which involves Shelley Gray and Mary Alt and Nelson Cowan, is that when we give a wide range of working memory measures in multiple domains, the executive function, phonological loop, visual spatial uh, sketch pad, we find that the when we did a latent profile analysis, it really shows the heterogeneity of children with DLD. And we looked at children with dyslexia and we know there's a high overlap of those children. And it really struck me um, of this, you know, variability, but it also it made me think back to my clinical experience as well, because I would notice uh, the, the children that had more difficulty in the treatment sessions. And I like how you said they parachute in, because I used to think it's like every session was new. Every session felt new. It was like, we're starting something. Do you remember what we did last time? And there was really no memory of what was done. And so you're starting fresh every time. And, uh, you know, that heterogeneity that we talk about clinically with children with DLD, I think that understanding more about their working memory profiles is so powerful to think about that heterogeneity. What do you think are some of the ways that we could use that information. So if you know about the child's working memory, on top of knowing more about their linguistic skills, how could that inform treatment? Yeah, so that is a pretty tough question, right? When we think about the findings with regards to working memory interventions um, that are coming out now, right? This suggests that um, it's really a near transfer sort of skill, right? And, and that I think reinforces the need for us to make sure that we're um, uh, providing intervention on what skills kids need at the time, right? So, but I think within that, um, we can be teaching strategies and skills that support the working memory functioning um, within those skills that they are needing at the time. So I think we can sort of combine those things. Um, and I think that 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 sort of strategy use, it goes along with the self-advocating piece you mentioned earlier, where people can know their best way of learning and the strategies that they need. I think in that way, it can support uh, our, our services and interventions. I've been a little worried about throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to their working memory findings. So those findings being that if you if you try to improve a person's working memory, you don't see that improvement spreading and generalizing to other areas that are maybe more functional. So if you teach you know, uh, children to have better skills on, let's say, an executive function task or even a phonological task, it doesn't mean that they're going to apply that improvement, quote unquote, in the phonological skill to learning new words, for instance. But I do think that when I say throwing the baby out with the bathwater, it seems like still having that knowledge when you're giving maybe more traditional, uh, and I put that in quotes too, uh, language treatment, that you could still use that knowledge, like you said, to uh, your advantage as a clinician to uh, tweak the sessions a bit, knowing that maybe this child really has such an impaired um, phonological memory that it's so difficult to remember sounds and sound sequences. And so that would be taken into account whenever you're you know, working with that child, because every child's so individual. It's true. And I think there's lots of questions we could still be asking about working memory intervention. Um, you know, some of the things that I worry about are most of the intervention 
has not focused on kids with identified working memory deficits, right? And so if kids have adequate working memory and you improve their working memory, you know, that, that's not maybe working memory resources that they need for learning because they're already learning well anyways, right? So I'm not sure that that necessarily uh, is, is the answer to the question. The other problem is that if you have poor working memory and you do some, in, that, that means that for a long time you've been learning using other mechanisms. And now if I improve your working memory, that doesn't mean you're, you're going to change your habitual way of learning, right? You'll yeah. go back. You'll keep on learning in the way you've become accustomed to, lear accustomed to learning. So if I've improved your working memory, then I need to take another step. I now need to help you begin to use those resources to learn and change your habits. And I think that's another piece that we're not really following up on in terms of our working memory intervention. Um, so I do, I, I agree. I think it's something we need to keep thinking about. I think we can do that within the context of the kinds of functional tasks and skills that kids need to be learning and, and, and really then have a win-win situation where they're, they're learning what they need to learn, but maybe in a more efficient way as well. Um, and I think then, you know, if we could create some space in considering working memory interventions, you know, not, you know, slam the door quite so hard because I find that right now <laughs> the door is slammed so hard that you can barely uh, mention the word right which doesn't then allow for future research opportunities if that door is slammed that hard i agree lisa we're struggling with that as a team is uh, yeah just you know sometimes these ideas get perpetuated not only just in the public awareness but really strongly in the research awareness and because funding is so tight and difficult to get if you're a reviewer and you see something you say oh i think that's already answered and that's that slam door it does make it more difficult but i'm excited that you are still working on this i think your points are well taken and we continue to push this as well um, on our team to try to to think more about uh, the complexities of working memory and how how that uh, you know impacts language learning. And I have to say, when I talk to clinicians, they are always saying, "Yes, yes, yes, yes. I see this too. I see this too." Um, and that's really reinforcing for me too to hear that clinicians find this to be important, um, even though there are some findings that are kind of restricting our funding at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I've also been really intrigued, Lisa, by some of your findings that children can have working memory deficits but don't look to be impaired in language or academic outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about that finding? I'm just curious. Yeah, so yeah, I think that is interesting. I'm not, you know, we're, we're measuring working memory is, you know, a thing. And so, you know, we, we need to keep working on that, waiting for your group's uh, assessment. <laughs> we're working on it. We're working on it. Very close to having our assessment available. Yeah. I do think that um, it could be a severity issue, right? So language is a very redundant kind of learning process. Lots of different ways that you learn language information. You can see it, you can hear it, you can have gestures around it. It gets repeated in different ways. And so it allows opportunities for different mechanisms, different pathways into learning. And you know, some of Dorothy's original ideas was that um, you know, really it's when more than one of these kinds of pathways are impaired, this sort of multiple inputs are impaired, that that's when we get this really long persistent um, problem with language. And so if you have a kind of mild working memory problem, perhaps that doesn't impair your language learning all that much. You have other opportunities 
um, for for language learning that you know you can you can kind of get around that working memory problem. So you you look okay, um, and but if you have quite severely impaired working memory, well that maybe then begins to to have a have an impact. And those kids we're probably going to see some language involvement as well. And our our data supports that to you know to a certain extent allowing for uh, you know everyone mix you know also being variable and not falling you know, really in line with uh, with everything but there seems to be this trend that it's the more severe working memory impairments who where we're seeing language um, um, really impacting and of course there is this you know the the problem with um, the limits of our language testing as well right so um, are the are the language tests that we're giving um, you know not taxing weak working memory well then they're probably going to perform okay and so they're going to look okay on language tests even if they have weak working memory whereas if we give a language test that places higher demands on working memory then we that's when we might see it so I think that those those might be some of the reasons that we're seeing those kinds of kids who are have poor working memory but may not be seeing that in their language testing that's really interesting. I'm making a connection right now to some findings from that power study uh, where we took children who had dyslexia with word reading difficulties and they show phonological memory deficits. And we also ensured, though, that they had good language scores. So on a self, they were above, I think, 88 was our cut point, but most of them were around 100 on a self core language assessment. And on vocabulary, expressive one word, uh, or I'm sorry, we did expressive vocabulary. They were in a nice range of 100, you know, what you would think would be typical. But then when we asked them to learn new words, so a learning task, like getting to your question or your thought about this idea of what is really the language measure measuring it's not really measuring learning so we did this word learning task and we revealed that these children did have deficits in word learning and we think they were more related to their phonological memory we showed that in some of our analyses uh, but it's interesting to see that gap between initial very early word learning that is less accurate than their typically developing peers and also so different than what you might expect from their language skills, which are typical. But if you think about what's involved in, you know, my, my first exposures to a word versus, okay, now I know the word. And like you said, these children could be using a lot of compensation mechanisms to learn the word well enough to do quite well on a, a language assessment. But there's that big gap between initial learning and language, and I think that's really, as you're talking, that's, I'm hitting, it's hitting home for me, some of our findings and how that relates to uh, your interpretation of working memory deficits. Yeah, that's interesting. And I do think, you know, once we, you know, and, and you know, the Gathergill's hypothesis about vocabulary learning was, you know, once we get a network, a semantic network that's rich, then that network scaffolds our learning of new words and it becomes the active pathway for how we build new vocabulary and working memory demands are lower um, as opposed to brand new words where we have you know really have a, a high need for for working memory right so we see this in our own learning, for example, if we have a really foreign word that would, that's really, really unusual to our language, we can see that the phonological memory demands of that are really high. Um, but all kinds of other things that we're doing and saying and remembering are really well associated with in our language numbers, and the demands on our working memory are considerably lower. Um, and so if we ask kids to use language skills that they're 
pretty good with, then the, they'll have all kinds of other opportunities to support the processing of those signals and to support their production of those signals. Um, whereas unfamiliar things, now that becomes you know, a real uh, working memory demand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we found too that children uh, in our study were able to, even though they had difficulty with word learning through the phonological aspects of hearing it, if we wrote the word down and showed them that, then they were actually improving in their spoken production so just seeing it paired with something written, right? It's like a, a very um, permanent type of, uh, you know, way to scaffold something transient like speech. And then right. that transferred. So that makes a lot of sense for what you're saying of using multiple modalities and multiple right. pathways. That's multimodality yeah. at its best, right? Is that you see it, you say it, you, you know, you get some semantic contextualizations, right? And I, you know, I'm often struck by, it's often the semantic piece that we remember, you know, the next day I can remember um, something about the word, but I still haven't got the phonological form. And then the day, a couple days after, when I've reviewed it more and more, I've now got like the, some of the phonemes beginning and ending, but the full phonological representation is still not laid down in my long-term memory. And it takes more and more practice until I finally get to the point of having the full phonological representation in a way that I can accurately recall on a consistent basis. So you can almost watch these new words come into your lexicon and see how that's mapping out with the, the systems and their power for retaining information. You know, I often say, you know, it, you know, if you imagined your semantic network, if it's very rich, like a net, and you toss something in, it's going to get caught there, right? But if your semantic network is very sparse and you toss something in, it's going to fall right through, right? So it has to be, so if it's well connected and when we have rich semantic networks, we have that opportunity, then those things are going to stick versus ones that are more sparsely connected. That's going to take many more representations to get stabilized connections in that representation. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, that's very cool. Well, I'm looking at the time. I know we're starting to move to the end of our talk, and I want to ask you two final questions I ask every guest. And the first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? So we're uh, here at Western, we're working on a practice-based research initiative, which is very exciting, goes along with this idea of implementation science. So we're looking at how, at joining with clinicians to help them address questions that they want to ask about their practice. Um, what I was finding is, you know, uh, for me to go into schools with my ideas and wanting to do a research project there, it was always a whole lot of work to end. Uh, people were loosely connected to it. And then I'd talk about that and I'd have clinicians come up and say, well, I'm doing this. <laughs> they yeah, tell me yeah. some amazing project that they had going on in their school boards with a control group and an experimental group and, you know, and that everybody was invested in it and it was all very exciting. I said, okay, well, can I just join you, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> help you answer those questions because those questions are the same kinds of questions that I have. Um, and so that's been um, um, really exciting to, to begin um, working directly with clinicians with their questions from the outset and, and joining with their service provision and to address those questions and coming up with answers to those questions. So, so that's been a very exciting new point where we're, 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 we have this model that through practice-based research we can um, look at creating practice or changing practice or capturing present practice um, to answer those questions. We've had some, some powerful 
results from from that. So we've helped um, we helped a group see that one part of their tool was really capturing change that they were looking at, and one another part of their tool wasn't. And in that meeting, we revised that tool and they implemented it within two weeks. Oh, so wow. it, it was you know that was really like the the why I'm doing this sort of um, answer to that question. So um, so that's um, a, a, a new exciting piece that I'm working. That's on. so exciting, Lisa. And I'm going to watch those results closely because I also have such a passion for implementation science and we had a podcast about it with a right. two one of my current postdoctoral fellows and a past uh, student and I really am excited too to see what's happening across the world I think too with implementation science and building these really close connections with clinicians and making it not this one-way street that it seems like unfortunately has been for some time like research feeding practice but we need to think about practice feeding research much more closely and and that's really cool and exciting. I, I'm looking forward to reading about that as well. So my next I, question. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that I find that the projects that the the clinicians are asking, but they're all you know they're they're grounded in um, evidence in, in an evidence base, right? Yes. So it's not like they're coming up with you know things yes. that are out there, right? That they're they're interested in narrative retells and its power for talking about kindergarten, you know, or phonological awareness. And those are questions that I you know I think we can. Uh, continue to ask in advance, and so uh, so I think the, there's a, a meeting space there yes. uh, with those clinicians. I agree. I, I, clinicians are just uh, everything to me. I, I think what they do is so powerful. And as one, I know, but I was only a clinician for a couple of years, and I think what clinicians are asked to pull off these days in terms of knowing the evidence and thinking about documentation, and it's so much. And these clinicians are just making such a huge difference. I, I love working with them. It's so inspirational and, and so enriching on so many levels. So that's really fantastic. I agree. My last question for you is, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? All right, can I only answer with one? That's yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I wasn't a big bookworm uh, uh, when I was young, but I have, uh, I did love um, books that had a, a rhythm to them, like a, you know, a, a verse kind of book. So there was a book called The Big Tidy Up that had, um, uh, that was a, a poetic rhyme uh, that uh, had beautiful big pictures um, and uh, with lots of things happening that you could be looking for things. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I have an old torn up copy that I was able to replace uh, uh, when my kids were uh, younger. And, and read to them. Um, and another poetry book is Something Big Has Been There um, for that I share with my kids. Oh, that's and awesome. And that's what I read when I got to start reading. I remember, I, you know, I, I one was called The Heidi to Read Aloud, which has, uh, you know, you can still find it, uh, it's old versions on Amazon. And it was um, written, uh, I think, before I was fully fluent with reading. And so because it was written in a to read aloud format, um, I had the skills to be able to read it, and it was highly visual. I can still imagine them melting the cheese, and then you know Claire's rocking chair going over the, a wheelchair going over the cliff, and them sliding in the hills. And so that visualization was really great. When my uh, daughter used to do a dramatic reenaction of it, and uh, uh, because she's, uh, you know, that was one of her big skills was drama. That's awesome. and, uh, she assigned my husband to be the wheelchair. In front of her. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. The only art she could find for him was a, he could be the, 
the wheelchair. And just a little bit older, there was a book called The Wicked Wicked Ladies in the Haunted House. And uh, that was a lovely one for, again, the visualization. Um, but at a time when um, uh, I felt I could manage a book, you know, that had, you know, full on chapters and smaller writing. And I, you know, I felt, com you know, felt com more confident about my reading. At that point, I got that through the school book club, um, which made me, you know, feel more of a bookworm than I felt. <laughs> yeah, you were so empowered, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, did you, were you born and raised in Canada? Yes. Okay. Yes. Are those Canadian authors then of the, these books? Ah, you know? I'm not actually sure. If okay, I'll look it up. I'll look it up and put it on the website. I always okay. try to put everyone's favorite books and try to find them. So I think that would be fun. To, the listeners could uh, check those out too. And uh, especially with the verse. Are you a music person? No, not particularly, not particularly uh, artistic and a talent um, at all. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm with you. Uh, my, my hobby is podcasting, so you can say I don't have any other hobbies. So. <laughs> Clearly, I also resonate with that. But I do love to read, and I, one of my favorite parts of the podcast is hearing about all these different childhood books. And I, what I typically do is buy them if I can for my own children, because it's just such another way to uh, incorporate a lot of different literature. So yeah. thank you for those recommendations, and they sound really, really fun. Right. Well, thank you so much for chatting today. I'm excited to release this on DLD Awareness Week. Uh, and thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. It's been great to talk to you. Great. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.